Thanks, Yvonne. Well, good morning. My name is Nathaniel. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I'm part of a team here at BPCC. I get to lead our youth ministry, and I have the honor and privilege of unpacking this passage from God's Word with us this morning, a passage which I'm really excited about. But first, I want to say a big hello to all of the kids who are with us this morning. Uh, Normally, you guys are over in Kids Church, but it's awesome to have you with us in the service today uh, on the second last day of holidays. One more day to go tomorrow, get a public holiday, extra day, then back at school. But I've got a question for you guys, all the kids present. Have you ever had to wait for something? Yes? Yep. I've had to wait for things. Uh, What's something you've had to wait for recently? Here's, here's an idea. Uh, maybe during the school holidays, are you big enough that mum and dad left you at home while they went off to do something uh, and you had to wait for them to come home? And if that was the case, did you have anything you had to do while they were away? Now, in case you haven't been in that situation, um, if mum and dad leave you at home and there's stuff you to do that they expect you to do while you're waiting for them to get back, it's a really good idea to do that stuff. Highly recommend. While you're waiting, you've got something to do. But that's just one sort of waiting, right? Um, In life, there are all sorts of ways that we can wait. For example, I'm gonna get married in five weeks and six days time. No one's counting. Um, It's it's rushing up really quickly, thanks. It's, It's rushing up really quickly. There's lots to do before then. Our waiting for the wedding is a waiting of busyness. We want heaps to do, heaps to prepare for. Time is racing past. Now, that is a very different sort of waiting to the sort of waiting that a soldier might do. You know, he's on a dawn ambush raid. He's waiting behind a tree, just waiting for that, that order to, to attack. That is very different to the sort of waiting that you do when you're waiting for dinner. You know, when you're really hungry, you can smell it. It's your favorite meal. It's in the oven. It's got 10 minutes to go. You can smell it's delicious. You're so hungry. You're just waiting for dinner to come. That's a different kind of waiting altogether. And then that sort of waiting is really different to the sort of waiting that you do when you're undergoing chemo and you're waiting for the nausea to go past. And that is a completely different sort of waiting to the sort of waiting that you do when you're sitting at the hospital bed of someone you love deeply, waiting for the doctors to come and give an update. Waiting is a big part of the Christian life. It's a big part of life overall, and it's a big part of what we do as Christians because we are waiting for Jesus to come back. We know that Jesus is going to come back. We don't know when he's going to come back, but we know that he will. So the question then is, what sort of waiting is this? How are we supposed to wait? What should that look like? And that's what our passage is talking about. It comes as part of an extended larger passage covering two whole chapters in Matthew where Jesus talks about the fact that he is going to return and he explains what that means for the way that we wait. He explains what it looks like to be prepared for him to come back. In earlier passages, Jesus talked about how his servants were to be watchful, holy, ready to meet him at any time and faithful in the use of their gifts and opportunities and all of, these, all of this information, all of these instructions about how to wait are really useful for us because we're still waiting for Jesus. We're still waiting for him to come back. We still don't know when. Could be right now. No, it wasn't right then. Could be any time. But we are waiting and we know that he will return. So in this last 
part of that extended passage where Jesus is showing how his followers are to be full to overflowing of this self-sacrificial, loving uh, attitude to others that he has modeled for us. It's got a lot of lessons for, for us today as well. If you've been around our church in the last couple of weeks to couple of months, these themes might be familiar to you. Uh, because in our series in the book of Thessalonians, we talked about the return of Jesus. We covered what, that looked, what that's going to look like and, and what it means to be ready for that. Uh, if you want to go back and watch that, if you missed it, it's really worthwhile. And then last week, Justice Sunday, we, we heard from Pastor Tim Hanner about God's heart for justice. And this passage covers the crossover between the two. This week, it's all about how we can express God's heart for justice as we prepare for the return of Jesus. So, let's have a quick look at what that passage has to say. First, we need to start by understanding what the passage is all about. We have to think about the gospel and the context it it comes in. I don't know if you've ever walked into a conversation which has been going on for a little while, completely misunderstood what was going on, and then made a bit of a fool of yourself by, uh, by misunderstanding what was going on. I've done that, a bit embarrassing, funny story for later on. Um, when you walk into a conversation, you want to know what the context of it is. And the same thing is true for this passage here. If we look at these couple of verses as if they just come by themselves without any context, we're going to completely miss the point of what it's all about which is very easy to do. This passage about the sheep and the goats has been misunderstood before to mean something like this. On the last day, Jesus is going to come down. He's going to separate out people based on whether they were good and nice to others or whether they were mean to others and and ignored others. And to all the people who were good and did enough good stuff, he's going to bless them and, and send them off to happiness forever. To all the people who were bad and did bad stuff, he's going to send them off to hell. So you have to do a bunch of good stuff so that Jesus looks on you well at the last day. Now, that is not what the passage is saying, but it would be easy to misunderstand it that way if we don't think about what comes around it. Now, that understanding wouldn't line up with everything the Bible says, because the Bible says a heap about salvation and about that last judgment day, and it is very, very clear about how we can be saved, that we can only be saved one way, We can only be made right with God one way, and that is through faith in Jesus, by placing our trust in Him, by repenting of our sins and giving our lives to Jesus. Take, for example, the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3, 16, which says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Or again, in Ephesians chapter 2, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is something which we call the gospel. The word gospel means good news, and the good news about Jesus is this, that God made this world good. He made humans to look after it. He didn't make pain brokenness, sadness. But humans rebelled against God. They rejected God. This is called sin. It separates us from God. It separates us uh, from, from relationship with God. It, this sin, this rejecting of God has broken us and it has broken all of creation. We are each born broken by sin, feeling the effects of sin. And we all add to that sin in our lives. None of us can say that that we have done only good, only right. Now, God is a 
perfect God. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly righteous. He cannot ignore sin. In fact, he must punish and destroy sin to remove it from this creation. But that puts us in the firing line. That would be bad news, but the good news of Jesus is that God is also perfectly loving. He made us. He treasures us. He has a plan to restore His creation and to restore His people. Because of His love for us, Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, came to earth as a man. He lived and died the perfect life, and He willingly died on the cross, not just to show us that He's great, but for us. He died to take the penalty for our sins on himself, on the cross. And even more than that, he defeated death. He rose again from the dead. So he can then offer us forgiveness of sins. And we can accept that purely by placing our faith in him. All those who place their faith in Jesus, their sin was paid for for by Jesus on the cross. And Jesus has promised that he will return one day. He will return, as we heard in this passage, as judge. When he returns, he will clean the world of all the sin which is damaging it, which is festering in it. All those whose faith is in him, who have been saved by him, have already had their penalty paid. They'll be separated out as the sheep. But those whose sin could have been paid for by Jesus but isn't will then need to give account for that. And that is how we are, we are saved. This is, this is foundational to approaching this passage and looking at this picture of, of judgment first because this passage is not a passage about how to become saved. It's a passage about, passage about what happens when we are saved. Because Jesus is talking to his disciples, his closest followers. He is explaining to them the fact that he will return and then giving them these pictures of what it looks like what it looks like to live a life which shows that you are prepared for him to return. That is so essential before we, before we go into looking at how we should care for others because as Tim Hanner explained to us last week, to understand God's heart for justice, to understand God's love for others, we have to first understand God's love for us. If your faith is in Jesus, then you have been claimed as God's, God's child and that is incredible We've been made children of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus. So, once we are saved, how should we live as we wait for Jesus to return? And that's what this passage is all about. And that is so essential to understand before we look at the sheep and the goats. Because if you aren't a Christian, this passage isn't directed at you. It's targeted at people who are following Jesus, people who are, who are part of the, the body of Jesus, who, people who believe in Jesus. It's not about how to become saved. It's about how we lived as saved people waiting for Jesus' return. So if you aren't a Christian, you can still get a lot out of this passage because it shows you what should happen in the life of someone who follows Jesus. It shows you what Jesus values and it shows you how eternally important it is to have your faith in Jesus. So, how should we expect someone who has been saved by faith in Jesus to then act towards others? That's what we see in the first group which Jesus identifies, his sheep. 
In that first part of the passage, we get so much encouragement. It's such a beautiful scene. Jesus returns. He's accompanied by this host of angels. He sits down on his glorious throne as judge. And after separating out the sheep and sheep and the goats, he turns to the sheep on his right. He speaks to them, the people whose lives have reflected this salvation only found by grace, by faith in Jesus. And look at those words that Jesus gently speaks over them. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick. And you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. But then there's a twist. These, these righteous, these sheep, the ones who are receiving the reward, it must be so great, it must be so awesome to be praised by Jesus himself like this. But something isn't quite right. It doesn't, doesn't sit too well with them. They say, Lord, Lord, when? When were you hungry and we gave you something to eat? Lord, when were you thirsty? You know, I've, I've had a bunch of people in my house for cups of teas, but I definitely don't remember giving you a cuppa. When were you naked, Lord, and, and we clothed you? And Lord, when were you a stranger and we invited you in? I mean, yeah, we've, we've hosted a bunch of strangers in the house, but that's a face I would never forget. And are you sure that it was me who visited you in hospital and, and in prison? You know, I know the people who I visited quite well, and I don't think that you're one of them. There's been some mistake, Lord. You're giving me the wrong credit here. Jesus says, whatever you've done for the least of my brothers and sisters, you've done for me. The righteous don't expect a reward for caring for others. They didn't care for the poor so they could earn some brownie points with Jesus. They cared for others because they had a genuine faith in Jesus their hearts had been shaped by the love of God, and that love started pouring out of them in an almost unconscious response. So the point is not for us to go out from here and then try and look at every single person that we see who is hurting or broken. Or We're not trying to see them as if they're Jesus. The point isn't to, to look at someone and try and visualize Jesus there and then help them because of that. The point is for us to dwell on and realize the incredible love that God has shown to us in Jesus, the incredible gifts that he has given us, the incredible care that he has for us, and then let that soak into us and express it to others. A genuine, mature Christian who is ready, who is ready for the return of Jesus, who is waiting for the return of Jesus, will unconsciously show love to others because of the way that God has loved them. There's an old story about a man called Martin of Tours. It's a very old story. I don't know, I don't know quite how accurate it is, but it really captures this, this passage quite well, so I'd love to share it with you. Martin of Tours, he was a Roman soldier and a Christian. Uh, and the one freezing day, the, that story goes, a beggar asked him for help. He was walking along uh, in, in his Roman soldier garb, you know, wearing his big soldier's cloak, thick, heavy winter cloak. Now, Martin had no money to give this beggar, but he had his cloak, so he took his cloak off, cloak off and, and ripped it in half and gave half to the beggar and put the other half back on himself. He keeps on going on his way, cold and shivering a little bit because it's, it's very chilly, he's only got half a cloak. That night, Martin reports having a vision 
having a dream where he saw Jesus in the courts of heaven wearing half of his cloak. And he heard an angel ask, Master, why are you wearing that battered old cloak? Who gave it to you? And Jesus replied, My servant Martin gave it to me. So, if being prepared for Jesus' return means loving his brothers and sisters, we have to ask the question, who are Jesus' brothers and sisters? You know, he specified, whatever you've done for me, whatever you've done for one of my brothers and sisters, you've done for me. Who are they? Now, Jesus actually answers this question earlier on in the Gospel of Matthew in, in chapter 7. He says, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing at his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and brother and sister. Anyone who has placed trust in Jesus is following him, is his brother and sister. Who is Jesus' brothers and sisters? That is any Christian, any person who is following Jesus. When we are saved by Jesus, God adopts us as his children. So, does that mean that we should only love other Christians? You know, you see someone in need, you say, are you a Christian? No? Oh, I'm going to find a Christian to care for. Is that what it's saying? No, not at all. Not only here, but throughout the Bible, that's, that's really clear. In fact, in the next section, we'll look at that in a minute, when Jesus speaks to the goats, he doesn't say, my brothers and sisters. He just says, one of these. Both here and throughout the Bible, the message about loving others and who we are to care for is very clear. We care for everyone, everyone who is in need, everyone who we can help, everyone we can show God's love to. But we place a greater emphasis on caring for those who are in our church family. Now, that isn't too much of a surprise. If you're a parent and your child becomes really, really sick at home, you're not gonna leave them there, dash down to the hospital, go into the kids' ward and say, hey, is there some child here who I can care for because my kid's homesick, but I wanna look after someone else? No, you're not going to, you're gonna look after your child. Uh, my family all, all live down in Victoria, but if, if I heard something really tragic happened down there, um, I, I wouldn't just call up random numbers looking for someone to help. I would ring one of my little sisters or, or my mum or my dad and say, hey, how's it going? Is there anything I can do? Do you want to talk about it? What's Because they're my family. I, I want to care for them. My, my immediate reaction is to help them. That doesn't take away from my desire to help everybody, but those are the first I'm going to jump to helping. And in much the same way, we prioritise helping our brothers and sisters in faith. Now, I see this in practice in our church family all the time. In fact, this is a big focus of the care team and the deacons who we heard from Ben about just earlier. When someone is sick or injured or, or out of a job or has a new child, there's always a huge group of people in our church family ready to rally around with meals and support and care. When someone needs a hand around the yard because they've got something that they can't get to themselves, Dirk and some blokes will show up and, and, and start shoveling stuff into utes and, and chopping down trees and helping out. When someone is lonely or struggling or going through a tough time, there's always heaps of doors and open and couches ready to, for them to sit down and have a cuppa and have a chat. I've myself have benefited from that from, benefited from that more than a few times. I love how much of this love for one another I get to see in practice in our church family. That doesn't take away from our love for others more broadly. We have heaps of missions and ministries and ways of caring for everybody around us. In fact, this loving one another, I think, builds a culture where we more and more naturally care for anyone and everyone who we can. But maybe you have been helping out people, maybe for a long time, and perhaps you're starting to feel a little bit disillusioned by it all. 
You know, sometimes it can feel so useless trying to help all the poor and oppressed because there are so many problems out there. There are so many people who need help. There is so much to do. And it just gets a bit overwhelming. And what's the point? You're never going to make a big dent in all of it. You're never going to fix all of the problems. Why bother? It can be discouraging because people don't normally just get their lives together after being helped one time or even sometimes after being helped a hundred times. You can look at that and see that they haven't fixed all the problems and they're not healthy and flourishing. And yeah, what's the point? Why, Why bother? This passage also encourages us with the reality that it is always, always worth investing love and care and time and effort into people who need it. It is inherently good and worthwhile just to serve, just to love, just to give. If we are motivated by God's love in us, if we are acting out of an overflow of God's love, out of a desire to point people towards God, to to show them His love, if that's our motivation, then it is always worth helping. And it doesn't matter if we see the results of that help or not. It is always worth doing. That doesn't mean that we should just enable people in unhealthy ways. Sometimes just giving a handout isn't the most helpful thing or the most loving thing just to try and solve the the symptom without actually thinking about the problem behind it. But if we really care for somebody, we don't want to just resolve the symptoms, we want to help them with the underlying problems, the challenges they are facing in their lives. We want to get to know them. We want to be friends with them. We want to care about them personally. If you want to grow your ability to do that, to help people, to serve people, to love people, I'd love to recommend this book, When Helping Hurts. Uh, It's by Brian Fickard and Steve Corbett. It's all about how to help people, uh, how how to help people without hurting them, how to get to the the heart of the issues, especially around poverty that that exists in many people's lives. If you're not much of a reader, there's also a great video series, um, Helping Without Hurting, which you can watch as well, based on the same content. God loves the hurting and the poor and the downtrodden. And if we have God's love in our hearts, that is going to start overflowing into the lives of those around us. But this isn't the end of the passage That was really encouraging and and builds us up and wants us to go and do things. But that isn't the end of the passage because Jesus doesn't only give encouragement to those who are ready for his return, those who are following him faithfully, those who trust in him. He also gives a warning to those who are not prepared for his return, who are not waiting in a way which reflects that transformation that he makes in our hearts. Because... The sad truth is that there's another group. There's the goats. Not everybody has placed their faith in Jesus. Not everybody will place their faith in Jesus. Not everybody trusts him. And there are even those who are among Jesus' flock who think they're going to be fine in the end, but will find themselves separated out among the goats. And one symptom of this is that in their lives, they don't reflect this unconscious desire to to pour out the love which God has shown them. So our passage now shifts from joy to sadness as Jesus turns to the goats on his left. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry 
and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. I knocked on your door, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was out in the cold there, freezing. I was sick and in prison, and I rotted there. You did not look after me. I waited there alone, and you never came. But then there's surprise from this group as well. Lord, they say, there, there must be some mistake. Come on, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty? You know, when did we ever see you needing clothes or a stranger? You, know, you weren't one of those creepy people who came to the door, were you? You know, Lord, that, that, that wasn't our ministry, you know? We, we didn't feel led. Lord, when were you sick? I'm so sorry, Lord. I would have sent you a card, Lord, if I'd known. When were you in prison, Lord? What were you in for anyway? You know, I heard there's some really dodgy people in there. I hope you steer clear of them. And Jesus will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Perhaps the most challenging for us today is that these are not only people who actively rejected Jesus, but it can be people who think that they are sheep. See what Jesus says earlier on in, in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now again, a reminder, this is not about how to be saved, but about what happens when we are saved. That verse is immediately followed by the, the parable of the wise and the foolish builders, all about building our lives on the solid rock, which is Jesus, placing our faith in Him and building everything we do, everything in our lives upon faith in Jesus. Now, this also doesn't mean that we're only allowed to care for people if they fit one of those boxes. You know, it only counts if they're hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, or in prison. And it doesn't mean that to be real Christians, we have to provide for every single one of those needs that we see, otherwise our faith isn't genuine. That's not what it's saying. The point of this passage is an attitude of preparedness. Jesus is describing what it looks like to be prepared for His return. So, are you prepared for the return of Jesus? Is that the attitude which shapes your heart and your life? Are you longing for His return? Are you living in light of the return of Jesus? Are you using the resources which God has given you to build His kingdom? In short, does your life reflect the genuine heart change which can only come from being saved by Jesus, from experiencing the love of God? I've had the privilege of being a part of this church family as part of a staff team for almost five years now. And from what I've seen day to day, you know, seeing stuff from the office and, and seeing what happens in our church family, the resounding answer to that question is yes. 
I'm so often encouraged by the generous, servant-hearted, loving nature, community that is in this church family. Just a Sunday last week, we saw just a little bit of the work that we're involved in here locally and around the world, showing the love of Jesus by practically supporting others. As part of the staff team in the office, I get to see this constant stream of needs being met, of people coming in, volunteering to serve, of people who need care being cared for. It's even an administrative challenge to keep track of everybody who wants to help somebody else, who wants to be there when they're needed. So on the whole, this is a message of encouragement for our church family. Keep on living out that salvation which is found only in Jesus. Keep on putting your hand up to serve. Keep on having your door open to have a cup of tea with someone who's going through a rough patch. Keep on making meals for someone who's going through a hard time. Keep on looking for someone who you can share in community with. Keep on looking for opportunities to love and to serve and to give and to show the love of Jesus. Keep on reflecting what it looks like to be a broken person who is genuinely seeking to love and follow Jesus. And look forward to that day when Jesus will return and he will say, come, you who are blessed by my Father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. But maybe this is a challenge for you because you don't see this attitude in your heart. Maybe you wouldn't be super excited for the return of Jesus. Maybe that unconscious expression of God's love in your heart isn't something which you can relate to. Now, becoming more and more like Jesus is a process, a process which takes time. We're never going to get everything right. And it takes a while before we start getting some things right. But if you aren't sure, this is worth seriously thinking about and praying through. Not in a way which focuses on you and and questions every single flaw you can find as, as a hint that you might not be saved, but rather with the attitude that Scottish pastor Robert McCheen famously advised. He said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. Look at yourself, look at your heart, and then look at Jesus. Give yourself fully to him. Look at who Jesus is. Spend time in his word. Spend time in prayer. If you find yourself challenged that perhaps you've never fully given your heart to him, That is something which is so simple to do. That's that gospel message. Faith in Jesus is the only thing that saves us. And once your faith is in Jesus, that process of looking at yourself once and looking at him 10 times and seeking to be more like him, that is something which will continue to grow us closer and closer to him, challenge us to be more and more like him and encourage us to show his love to others. But maybe you're new to this whole church thing. Maybe you're someone who I was speaking to right back at the start. Maybe you're not a Christian. But you're thinking about what it might look, to follow, might look like to follow Jesus for the first time. If that's you, then please take the time and effort to look into this more. This is the most important question in the universe. It's the most important question you'll ever face in your life, whether you will trust Jesus. Because there is a final judgment coming. None of us would be able to pass through that just on our own merits, on what we've done. But the judge loves you. He has given his life for you. He offers you free salvation, free forgiveness. And all that takes is trust. Place your faith in him. So 
to repent and believe in the good news of Jesus. Follow him and see the way which he works to make real change in your life as he makes you more and more like himself. Jesus himself showed his God's love to us. He saved us. It's a simple salvation that we can easily accept. And he also taught us how we can then approach God. He gave us a simple prayer. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. He taught us how to pray. I would love for for you to stand with me now to pray this prayer. And in just a moment, we'll sing these words as well as part of the song, Our Father. If you don't know the Lord's Prayer, it'll be up on the screen. Will you stand with me now and pray the Lord's Prayer together? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen.